Jersey court had indicted Hauptmann kidnapping and murder. Arrested in New York, he was arraigned on criminal extortion charges and put under heavy bail pending extradition. More than two years after the actual kidnapping, the arrest of Hauptmann caused a national sensation. Charles A. Lindbergh, grim and shaken after his appearance to testify, was still America's great popular hero. His ordeal as a bereaved parent was an anguished memory. The present had become a nightmare for another parent, Hauptmann's wife, who clung to their infant son. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast and part two in this series. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the ransom notes um, and, you know, the the initial investigation um, and how those ransom notes uh, tie in to uh, the, the, the idea that John Knoll was, in fact, uh, involved with Haltman. Well, I could get into very deep detail about this, but I will, for the, from the beginning, I will just say that there was a symbol in the in in the ransom notes uh, um, there were 15 notes in in total and there were they there was a symbol on wrote notes number one two four six and seven nine ten eleven twelve thirteen and fourteen and it was a symbol composed of two uh, it was called a signature uh, it was referred to as a signature in uh, the ransom notes, it was a, there were two interlocking blue circles that were stamped onto the page. Uh, they are the, exactly the size of half dollars. And in the area of intersection, it was a uh, mark made with a cork. I would say it is between the size of a dime and the size of a pin. Uh, you know, you know, you'll read books about. It. There's, I've never seen it accurately described. There are two, there are two little lines that are in the circles, one in each circle outside the area of intersection, and there are three holes punched through the uh, the signature. One that pierces the, one that pierces the red dot uh, and cork mark, and then the other two to the, uh, just outside the edges of the blue circles. And so this was a way that Lindbergh could know and the police could know that they were dealing with the bona fide kidnappers of their son rather than with copycats. Where uh, where they, were the ransom notes discovered? Well, the, the, well the, the, the first one was left on the windowsill of the baby's nursery. And then the others were then mailed from different locations. Um, uh, just you know, again, John Knoll is a, a a philatelist, a stamp collector. Is, this is his great passion, and he knows all about cancellations. And you know that he's going to confuse people by mailing some from the Bronx, some from Brooklyn, some from Manhattan, and so forth. So. That's that. That also is, uh, you know, a fact that that <clears throat> certainly a philatelist. It's a, something a clever philatelist would have done. What's interesting to me is that you know, in today's day and age, those notes could have been analyzed for uh, different types of forensic evidence, DNA, 
etc. And obviously, this this all occurred well before any of that. I'm interested in how the investigation and the trial would have uh, been different had the crime happened today. Um, so the, the the case though was very dependent on handwriting analysis, correct? Yeah, the the, the well the. The, the most damning things to uh, Altman were, were, of course, he's found with $14,600 of the $50,000 ransom. And this was uh, most of the money was squirreled away in secret compartments. Most of the money was squirreled away in secret compartments in his garage. It's not a good fact for him. Pardon me? It's not a good fact for him, right? No, not yeah. a good fact at all. Yeah. And also, there were... the, the Hamlin was a carpenter, and he was a he was a very talented carpenter. I mean, he was a very um, he was a very, he was you know he he was not the imbecile that a lot of people have have portrayed him to be. This was a very inventive device that he created. You couldn't have found anything like it in the Sears or Montgomery Ward catalogs of the day, which was the the equivalent of Amazon back then. Um, but the ladder was made in sections that could be transported in his 1930 Dodge DD sedan so that the sections would nest. There were three sections that nested into one another and they could be fit into the sedan to go from the front windshield to, to the rear window with a few inches to spare. And they were connected. The sections were connected with dowel pins. As it turned out, only two of the sections were needed, and the third unused section that was called Rail 16 was one of the rails. And as it turns out, that rail was once shown. Uh, there was a wood expert named Arthur Kaler who came from Wisconsin to to uh, do forensic work on the on the ladder, and Kaler determined that this. Rail 16 was once part of the same piece of wood as a floorboard in, in Houtman's attic. There was a little gap in between, but you could see where the wood grain, the, the, the lines of the wood grain would match up. So this was a very, 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 very uh, damning thing for, for Houtman as well. And then uh, when Lindbergh, Lindbergh on the night that the ransom was Aid, drove the intermediary Condon to St. Raymond Cemetery. And from a distance, and uh, there was a man inside the cemetery calling out for Dr. Condon. He said, hey, doctor. Uh, and anyway, Lindbergh is catty corner, uh, and he doesn't, he's, he's a fellow who doesn't have good hearing, for one thing. For all those years of being in open cockpit planes, I've spoken to his his daughter Reeve about this, and she, you know, she she said he was, you know, kind of almost deaf in you know in one ear, and you know he he always would ask her to enunciate more clearly and so forth. But he did not have good his his hearing was not good. But then you know two, you know years later, so this would have been April of 1932 when Lindbergh hears this, and then. At the trial in uh, January of 1935, Lindbergh said that was Halpin's voice, and that 
for and that was that was really really um, really really bad for Hauptmann obviously uh, to have have this very sympathetic figure the father um, say that that was Hauptmann's voice where there, it, that, this it, when he had earlier and said there's no way he'd be able to identify it then he changes his his tune and and says that that's Hauptmann's voice the intermediary. Uh, which is, and, which is, by the way, a, a piece of uh, testimony that likely would never be admissible today. Yeah, well, and and, sir, and the and the defense attorney didn't challenge it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the defense attorney did a very poor job as well. So, right. um, Hauptman was really in in rough shape. Who explain to me who? Uh, Condon, Dr. Condon was and why he was chosen as the uh, as an intermediary and, and was the meetup coordinated with the police or how, how did that how did that transpire if you can explain that for our listeners? Sure. Uh, Dr. Condon was in his early 70s. He was a, a retired, semi-retired educator. He had been a principal in Bronx schools for many years. My grandfather knew him kind of, he was kind of a big blowhard. My grandfather referred to him as an old coot. They were in this Bronx old timers club together. Uh, it was kind of a social organization of men that had been in the Bronx for a long time. Anyway, uh, Condon was outraged that Lindbergh's child was kidnapped. And so he had a relationship with the editor of the Bronx Home News, which was the newspaper that my dad uh, was a uh, newsboy, a paper boy for. And anyway, uh, Condon writes a letter to the editor of the Bronx Home News uh, saying that he'd like to be helpful in returning this child to his parents. He'll offer a thousand dollars of his own money, so on and so forth. Well, um, the Bronx Home News then publishes a page one little squib. I mean, just a tiny, a tiny little, you know, tiny little squib in the lower right hand corner of the front page, saying that Dr. Condon will offer offer to uh, act as an intermediary in the case. This isn't, that isn't exactly what he did, but that's what the newspaper said. And uh, anyway. Again, my father is the guy that is the kid that is delivering the newspaper in the area, so he's dropping off copies of, to uh, John Knoll. Uh, and so, anyway, Knoll reads this uh, this squib in the newspaper and writes a letter to Condon and uh, saying, "You may act as the intermediary." Lindbergh has said, you know, he wanted to have. Some mobsters get involved and be the intermediary. And one of the ransom letters said, "We're not going to accept any any intermediary on you from your side. You know, we're gonna, we're the ones in control." Um, and so John Knoll reads this, or the kidnappers read this, and they write they write a letter. The kidnappers write a letter to Condon, saying that he may act as the the go between. And then he writes a, a letter to, to Lindbergh, uh, saying, you know. Uh, uh, create a you know a list of instructions uh, to follow, and, and all so, these letters appear to be in the same handwriting. Uh, probably, mm-hmm. probably. I'm not a mm-hmm. handwriting expert. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
um, the first letter looks, I mean, it looks like the indifferent, the, the work of an indifferent pupil in a, th- a fifth rate grammar school um, might have been done with the opposite hand. Who knows? My, my sense is that Noel likely dictated the letters to Houtman mm-hmm. and then addressed the envelopes himself uh, and then uh, mail and took charge of mailing them. That's my, that is my uh, best estimation of what happened. Um, there was actually a, a very high tech, uh, sophisticated software program that was developed by a uh, software expert at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Sargur Srihari, and the Knowles handwriting was, was uh, compared to the handwriting on the ransom envelopes, and there was a 96% probability that Noel wrote those. But uh, wow, I don't, I don't think that he wrote the. Uh, I, I think he most likely dictated the letters to Halpin. That's that. That's what is and and you know the the handwriting analyst in the Lindbergh case said that this was hand, Lindbergh that that was Halpin's handwriting in the in the in the ransom notes. But anyway, so. Um, the, uh, so Condon calls up the Lindbergh residence late, late in the night and says he's got this letter and then he describes this, this strange symbol in the lower right hand corner. And they know immediately that this is, this is the right deal. So Condon comes out to the, the Lindbergh home very late at night, gets there pat, well past midnight and Lindbergh sees that the symbol matches that of the earlier ransom notes and he uh, agrees to have Condon be the intermediary. So that's how Condon got involved. Was uh, was there only the one, uh, I'll call it a meetup, so to speak, to, uh, to give the ransom money over or was there more than one meetup? There were two. The, the money had not yet been assembled and uh, but Condon thought it that the uh, it was a good idea to go ahead and meet with the representative of the kidnappers anyway, and so he did. Although they didn't have the money, so they met the first time at Woodlawn Cemetery, and um, John Knoll was inside cemetery. John was inside this. It's and again, this is a magnificent cemetery. Anyway, um, John gets spooked by a, a guard inside the cemetery and leaps over just an amazing leap over the gate uh the front gate at the corner of 233rd and jerome avenue and runs across the street into van Cortland park so anyway uh john agrees to send the the baby's sleeping suit which he had taken off the baby uh and uh he said that that way you'll know that we have it and of course this is not proof of life and uh, anyway, they send the sleeping suit, and uh, they arrange to have a second meeting at the, at the second meeting at St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx, is where the fifty thousand dollars is is uh, handed over. And that was the total amount of ransom money that was provided to the uh, purported kidnappers, correct? Correct. They they had raised it from fifty to seventy, and then Condon, at the second meeting, 
<clears throat> negotiated John down from 70 to 50 and which infuriated the, the, the treasury department individuals because he took out the $50, uh, $450 bills, which would be the most, uh, difficult to pass. And they, they were, they were, they, these were all gold certificates and which ultimately after President Roosevelt uh, took office and got us off the gold exchange, uh, gold standard. Um, these it became illegal to, to hold, have all these ransom notes, uh, ra- excuse me, the, these gold certificates mm-hmm. and gold coins. And so this was part of the, the Treasury Department's brilliant strategy, even though at the time of the kidnapping, they were not illegal, but they they were hoping that this would this was what would happen. And sure enough, it did. And Houtman was ultimately caught passing a $10 gold note at a ga- Warner Quinlan gas station in Upper Manhattan. With and uh, the gas station attendant became a little suspicious of Houtman, and he wrote down the license plate 4U 1341 on the back of it, and ultimately that got traced back to Houtman. That's how he got caught. Were law enforcement involved in the? two meetups at all no Lindbergh refused to allow uh he just wanted his child back he didn't care about the prosecuting if he got his child back he was going to be happy of course the the child uh, was uh, was was long dead by then uh which obviously he did not know but uh no he refused Mm -hmm. to allow the uh, authorities to get involved. And of course, you would not never be able to do that. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, were law enforcement aware of what he was doing? Because if so, they, it does seem like they deferred and, and understandably so to some extent looking back, but I don't, I don't think that that would, um, that would be permitted now today. No, clearly not. So, um, did Condon, did Dr. Condon testify at the trial? He did. Interestingly, when he, when Houtman got caught, he said, no, this is not the man. But the prosecutor, a, guy, a very ambitious uh, young guy, 39-year-old guy named David Willance. Still, there's a huge law firm in uh, New Jersey bearing his name. Uh, this was a very big deal for him. He wanted to become a big Democratic Party uh, kingpin and kingmaker and uh he was going to do whatever whatever it took. uh and so he ended up uh changing his tune and he was i'm sure he was presented with a lot of evidence that showed that con- that Houtman was involved the ladder the money and handwriting and so forth so he changed his tune in, in what stand. way on the stand or well he, he, he said that john is bruno richard Houtman on the stand so um he completely changed his tune. He he he. Uh, he had previously given a a statement yeah, indicating I mean, otherwise. It, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so so he did that, and that was uh, it happened. How he just been shaking his head as he's watching this. I mean, well, this is a nightmare. A nightmare. And there's so many there's so many laws now, rules now related to. Uh, out of court identifications, in court identifications, etc. So that's another just yes. in- interesting observation as to how the trial may have gone differently had it been held uh, today. 
uh, you know, this evolution of these uh, identification type of laws. Uh, that's well, that, one thing, there's, not, there's no electric chair in the... There's no uh, death penalty in New Jersey now. Well, that's, that's that well, is true. That is true. Hopman Hopman ever give a statement? Oh, uh, he said. Uh, well, he he proclaimed his innocence to the end. Um, right. As did his wife clear. till her death. Well, it's very clear. I mean, he, I don't think he was ba- he was convicted one hundred percent on circumstantial evidence. I don't think he thought he was going to get convicted. Mm-hmm. And so then he would have had, if he had, and if he had then confessed to having been involved in this thing, then he would have had to tell his wife, I've been lying to you all, all along. He would have then lost the support of the German American community, which had supported him greatly. They would have thought he was a, a rat. And then, but he was also very concerned about his family name and his name of his. He had, a, he had his own toddler son at the time, who was born in 1933, the year after the kidnapping. And he wanted his his son to believe that he had been that he had been uh, unfairly, unjustly convicted, wrongfully convicted. And for the rest of her life, Anna Halpin tried to clear his name with no great success. Uh, but uh, this was what was told to this Manfred Halpin all his life. Trial of the century. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Robert, for sharing uh, what led you to this fascinating story and um, and and the research that you uncovered. It's um, I I as I shared with you before we started recording, just became interested in in this because I am a former prosecutor, current criminal defense attorney in New Jersey, and and wanted right. to do a series on this podcast, New Jersey Criminal Podcast, about the most famous uh, case in New Jersey, the, the trial of the century that happened right here. And so I'm just kind of scratching the tip of the iceberg here in my, um, you know, education on this case uh, and, and had a general idea of how I wanted to go about learning about it. And I thought the best way to do it would be to speak with speak with the experts. And so I'm just so grateful for you uh, to you for uh, sharing the story. I um, I would encourage my listeners to read Cemetery John, the undisco- undiscovered mastermind of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Uh, and Robert, you are just so well known and well respected on this topic. And I, um, I'm honored that you took so much time to walk us through uh, your story and more importantly, you know, the story of the kidnapping and, and murder of Charles Lindbergh's child. Well, and my pleasure. So nice to uh, to be with you today. And um, thank you so much for the invitation. It was, a, it was a joy and a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned. There is more to come. The best way to follow, subscribe, rate, or message the show is to visit njcriminalpodcast.com. If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast. 